I'm Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 37 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. Here, as every week, we start off with a little bit of a news roundup, and I'm sure you will be completely shocked to hear that the Senate once again failed to pass an extension of long-term unemployment benefits this week. Shocked. Um, shocked. And completely appalled. Completely shocked. Definitely appalled. Mm-hmm. Definitely appalled. <laughs> but the Senate being appalling is sadly not really that right. much news. Um, so they demonstrate once again how far removed our mostly millionaire elected officials are from the rest of the country. Um, Republicans are calling it a procedural dispute because 1.3 million people with no income will rest so much easier knowing that procedure was properly followed and that Republicans were given ample chance to amend a bill paying their bills. They screwed them according to the normal parliamentary Exactly, protocol. exactly. So... Two different votes on two different proposals actually failed on Tuesday because why fail at just one when you could fail at multiple? Um, the first one, according to Sam Stein and Arthur Delaney at the Huffington Post, was a one-year extension of the long-term unemployment benefits that would be paid for by cutting said benefits by $8 billion, as well as by extending the sequestration cuts. You remember those, don't you? That thing we still haven't gotten rid of either that is keeping... Mandatory spending levels low, spending on basic things that, once again, basic human needs. Extending those cuts to mandatory spending into 2024 and reducing the ability of those receiving Social Security disability insurance to simultaneously receive unemployment benefits. Because, you know, all of those things, that's just way too cushy for you. Um, That bill failed the cloture vote. In other words, it failed to break a Republican filibuster by a vote of 52 to 48. Now, remember, if you're filibustering... And we don't actually filibuster anymore. We just say that we're going to filibuster and thus have to get to a 60-vote supermajority in order to pass anything. Um, The Senate then voted on a second bill, which would have extended the benefits for three months without paying for the extension. Um, That vote, of course, failed as well, 55 to 45. So that's just the Senate. Let's not even talk about what happens when and if the Senate actually passes something and then gets to the Republican control of the House. Meanwhile, outside of the bizarro bubble that U.S. politicians operate in, where the only interests that matter are those of the donor class, we should probably note that polls have showed popular support for ideas far much more progressive than just unemployment insurance, like things like a federal jobs guarantee. Shocking, once again. Well, then I guess it makes total sense that Congress is now in the single digits in their approval ratings. Something like that, yes. yes. Um, more, and, less popular than cockroaches, right, I believe. Right, And I think the legislative benchmark for them was like funding the government through Saturday or something. I, I mean, that's true. Yeah. So, yeah, your tax dollars at work, people. Our failed Anyway, state. right. Um, so uh, from, from our uh, failed uh, federal uh, system to um, a local initiative that has been getting some momentum but is still facing a perilous political path. Pathway. Our uh, new mayor, Bill de Blasio, here in New York City, is uh, moving forward with his rather ambitious plan to implement universal pre-K in New York, and that recently got a ringing endorsement from a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of organized labor. Um, there's a lot of support for it, obviously, from the teachers' union, um, and it's interesting because I've been researching this for a piece I'm working on, and uh, I found that uh, preschool um, levels of the uh, education workforce are among the least unionized of all of them. And it would be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of whether or not early childhood education, much of which actually takes place in uh, mixed delivery settings, which is to say not within the public school system per se, uh, whether that uh, ends up being um, a boon to union membership in um, the education system here in New York. And that would be sort of an interesting uh, ancillary effect, I guess. But before we even get around to that, I mean, let's just remember that from Fundamentally, universal pre-K is is a working families issue because it would allow many more working families to afford having a quality place to um, put their kids and get their kids started on uh, in early education. Um, so that's one of the main reasons that unions are endorsing it. Um, but before we even get to that point, um, we need to find out whether or not this plan would actually be funded. And uh, de Blasio's plan was to increase taxes on the wealthy in order to fund 
this program, which would guarantee universal pre-K for every child in the city, not just, um, it wouldn't be targeted just towards low-income parents. Um, but uh, it may uh, lead to, this may lead to a clash in Albany because Governor Andrew Cuomo is, um, um, who has a much more um, conservative state legislature to deal with. And um, is much more conservative himself. Let's right, not give the right. legislature all the credit. Yes, though they certainly do deserve uh, so much credit for all the stagnation that goes on in Albany. But assuming this even gets to uh, anywhere near the governor's desk, um, there is still that bottleneck because Cuomo has uh, said it again and again that he is uh, bent on cutting taxes rather than raising them. And how would that play out in terms of de Blasio's plan to fund uh, this universal pre-K initiative um, through some sort of redistribution? of tax on the rich. And of course, how that plays politically in New York City also has to do with, well, will the rich of New York City see something in this for them? And that will sort of be a test for um, where they see the role of public education in the city, which, uh, as we've noted on this program before, is becoming increasingly polarized and increasingly segregated in many ways. So um, stay tuned for that. But we'll keep uh, we'll keep uh, our eye on it. So from New York to Chicago, and speaking of city-level politics, the Chicago Teachers Union, which we have notably talked about several times on this podcast, maybe most notably on our first episode with uh, Chicago Teachers Union President Karen Lewis, has uh, sort of declared war on the political establishment in Chicago. They are forming an independent political organization, um, having taken on the Democratic machine in the form of Mayor Rahm Emanuel for quite a while. Um, they're essentially, this appears to be a way of consolidating the power and the reputation that they've built over the last couple of years of organizing in the community on issues like school closures and creating a way to support candidates who are in line with its vision, groom possible future candidates. Brandon Johnson of the CTU told NBC Chicago, within the next couple of months, we'll begin to see a more complete rollout. And when it's further developed, you're going to see a more fully staffed operation with a director, a board, canvassers, and more. We'll have people assigned to communities and the neighborhoods we wish to work in, along with folks assigned to things like recruiting future candidates and fundraising. Um, this seems like it's maybe taking part of a page from things like the Working Families Party, which does not have a presence in Chicago at the moment, but works here in New York, cross-endorsing candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and Allowing to do things that or no unions right. would not necessarily do. Right. Um, and existing as a force within and without possibly the Democratic Party. So it will be very, very interesting to see where this goes. Um, it should be noted, of course, that the force behind this within the union was CORE, which is the caucus that Karen Lewis belongs to that took over the union and prepared for the famous now strike. Um, We will, of course, have much more on this subject as it goes forward. Mm -hmm. And from one strike capital to another, uh, we'll now go to the streets of Phnom Penh. Uh, I wrote recently uh, for In These Times about a major garment worker strike. it ended uh, earlier uh, this month with a massive crackdown on a protest encampment in the middle of Cambodia's capital city. Uh, a number of workers uh, and uh, their advocates were um, detained and otherwise brutalized by the police. And it struck me as an interesting labor action, not just because we've been seeing a lot of labor activism swell up from the uh, global South garment industry, see Bangladesh, but uh, because it was an interesting convergence of civil society forces and the garment workers uh, as a a labor force. And it's interesting to see what's going on in Cambodia, because right now you have um, some massive unrest unfolding in terms of questioning the legitimacy of the authoritarian government, which recently, uh, you know, held on to power, but through elections that were widely criticized as rigged. So uh, you actually had a broad base of people coming out onto the streets for weeks in December, uh, rallying both for, uh, you know, a, a recall of the election, as well as a higher minimum wage for Cambodian workers. They were asking for um, the uh, lavish sum of 160 U.S. dollars per month. And that would have been, uh, mind you, a doubling of what the guaranteed minimum is now. So, right, uh, they, they the government agreed to raising it to about $100. And 
when workers rejected that offer, they ended up taking to the streets, and then all hell broke loose. So um, basically, right now, everything is in limbo. Garment workers are beginning to trickle back into the factories, but I think it said something, uh, it made a pretty defiant statement about labor action in Asia, especially in the Asian garment workers sector. I also spoke to David Welsh of the Solidarity Center in Cambodia, which is one of the international labor groups that is offering technical support and uh, sort of international campaign support to the workers and the detained protesters. And we're going to hear a little bit now from David Welsh. The challenge for the Cambodian labor movement and the international trade union movement is to basically advocate on the same issues that have been advocated on in Cambodia throughout the global garment industry. Basically, where does the global garment industry thrive? It seeks out jurisdictions and areas where the rule of law is incredibly weak and where people are in such dire economic straits that they find themselves forced to almost work under any conditions. That, if we look around the world, are the jurisdictions and places where the global garment industry operates, functions, and thrives. But they're the only ones thriving, apart from the factory owners, of course, right? So the idea is to create an environment where they can no longer either tacitly or blatantly say, if these costs aren't lower, uh, we'll go elsewhere. We can always chase a lower buck and to raise standards globally so that it's no longer possible to say, we'll be able to apply slave labor conditions in Bangladesh or Burma or in Guatemala and we'll leave Cambodia. And that was David Welsh from the Solidarity Center in Phnom Penh. For this week's conversation, I'm sort of personally excited to have uh, Max Fraser join us this week because Max, once upon a time, edited the first piece I ever wrote on labor as a professional journalist. Um, he's a graduate student and organizer at Yale University at this moment, and he has a piece up in Descent Magazine called Can the One Day Strike Revive the Labor Movement? So join us in welcoming Max. So, Max, you start out your piece at Descent um, not with one of the coordinated strikes at the fast food movement, but with a spontaneous action that workers took when the air conditioning went out at one of their stores. And you end it with the point that the one-day strike is um, serves to build solidarity. Um, there's been a lot of criticism of the fast food movement in particular as being too top-down, but I have to assume you probably started with the spontaneous action on purpose. Um, can you share some thoughts on what it means that workers are now taking action themselves in response to specific abuses? Uh, yes. The point that I wanted to make in the article is that the criticisms, which we have all heard and maybe even offered at various moments about the top-down nature of the organizing that's been going on in the fast food industry, the top-down nature of the union, which has driven a lot of the organizing, uh, you know, uh, SEIU, um, is both true and besides the point, um, because I think as the comparison that I make of, of this moment to the 1930s and, and pointing our attention to the uh, period before the great sit-down strikes is to say that the kinds of spontaneous self-directed uh, actions that workers are capable of taking are, are necessary on a smaller cellular, even molecular level before anything bigger like a union um, or a, a, a sit-down strike can be formed. Now, even that I would temper by saying I don't think any of us here believe in the kind of sponta spontaneity of the working class as a way of imagining how collective organization happens. But actually, um, what does happen through actions like this, the one that I begin talking about, and I begin the piece by talking about, is that a group of workers who know nothing but obedience and deference through their normal uh, life at the workplace learn how to take risks to break the law, uh, the law of the workplace, that is, and um, in doing so become bolder, see a kind of organic community uh, emerging around them and, and make possible actions on, on greater and, and more permanent scales in, in the next go-round. Um, you did note that the one-day strike has the power to build solidarity as a sort of spontaneous um, uprising that happens on a very localized workplace level. Um, I was wondering in terms of just uh, strategic organizing, it does seem that while a one-day strike might seem uh, rather spontaneous, it also requires quite a bit of coordination as well as some strategic planning around the actual time frame of the strike. Yeah. And, um, you know, even more so than, say, perhaps an indefinite strike, right? Sure. Um, so uh, I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that for those of us who are not professional organizers. What 
um, really factors into the dynamics of a strike's duration and what are some of the specific risks that are tied to the one-day strike versus a strike that stretches on indefinitely and therefore imposes um, indefinite risk to the productivity of a workplace? I think the reason that the strikes that we are seeing are one-day strikes and not indefinite strikes, some of that has to do with changes in American labor law, which um, provide uh, employers with all sorts of punitive measures at their disposals to make it very risky for any group of workers to strike. There's also no way that you can call an organized uh, indefinite strike of uh, a workplace with, as I note in the piece, some of these the locations of these strikes being only one or two workers involved. Um, so not only is there no chance of being able to shut down the the restaurant, say in this case, for an indefinite period of time, um, there's no even chance of shutting it down for a day, right? Because there might be one or two workers participating in the strike, but uh, uh, the rest of the, the workplace can, continues to function as normal. And you know, in a in the in a workplace like a fast food restaurant, missing one or two members of a work shift is not going to um, even even slow down, let alone stop production or right. um, yeah. going on there. I, so I think there is a realism, I guess, in terms of what is possible and not possible at this moment in calling for the strategic um, one-day strike approach. And then I would say that there is also a, a strategic calculus, I think, which, which I I would say in the reporting that I've done and in my experience following the what's going on, I, I don't know the answer to necessarily. I don't even think probably that the the workers themselves or the organizers at SEIU and other places know the answers themselves. That the one-day strike draws a lot of publicity. And then it might be that publicity and political attention is the way that the workers involved can win the uh, gains that they're seeking, right? A, a wage floor, um, rights to organize, things like that, which would come more through a kind of uh, legislative um, process, um, which a kind of PR-focused campaign uh, or a kind of um, public-focused fo- uh, strike campaign like the one-day strikes produce um, might be the most effective means of addressing that actually it's taking bargaining kind of out of the workplace um, uh, in a way that shutting shutting down the factory, right, the indefinite strike shutting down production is about, you know, or- organizing to bargain in the workplace itself. Yeah. Right. I think there's still a question about how strong um, those workers can be at their immediate workplace, fast food workers can be at their immediate workplaces, you know, in, in, the, in the long term, not only now when they're not well and well enough organized yet to actually, uh, you know, force McDonald's to come to the table and right. negotiate a fifteen dollar, you know, wage floor or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From the tactical standpoint, we we did see as the fast food worker strikes were sort of erupting in different franchises across the country, the effects were quite varied in terms of how much they impacted production that day right. and how much of a right. public sort of uh, valence they had. Um, right. Many of them were coupled with um, quite impressive protests, you know, outside of the outlet. Um, yeah. And even if uh, production was going on as you know smoothly as usual, uh, because only you know three or four workers out of a workforce of say dozens were striking right. at that particular franchise. Right. And it's also interesting, right, when we're talking about the one-day strikes, we're also talking about Walmart and we're talking about, in those cases, you might be able to get enough fast food workers to go on strike to close a McDonald's or a Domino's. I think, in fact, there have been a couple of those that did have to shut down because not enough workers showed up. You're very unlikely to get enough workers at one Walmart to shut down a Walmart because it's just so huge and there are just so many people. Mm. Yeah. And we have to remember, right, that a company like Walmart shuts down its own stores as a matter of uh, uh, labor policy, yeah. right? And has a, a, and and um, uh, it's it's hard to imagine even a fully organized wall-to-wall organized Walmart superstore where the workers are prepared to go out indefinitely, right. actually succeeding in bringing the the the, the company to heel. Yeah. The opposite, right? I mean, with history would suggest that that. All that will do is ensure that the store is shut down. Right. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I think was very important about this piece is that you point out that minority unionism like this was actually really the standard for quite a long time and how the the way the union certification process that we've become used to actually gave a lot of weapons to employers. Can you talk a little more about that? 
Yeah, well, I mean, the, the you know, the, the NLR, the, the process defined by the uh, National Labor Relations Act that goes through the uh, election certification process through the NLRB right. um, is a has proven to be a devil's bargain for workers in a whole variety of ways, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. But in, in this case, um, because by granting a legally defined process for workers to demonstrate their desire to have a union and then for employers to be compelled to recognize that and begin negotiations, it enshrined the, the idea also that that process could only happen if a majority of workers at a given workplace or company or whatever, whatever the defined bargaining unit is, yeah. um, um, voted for the union, right? Or, or in some ways indicated their, their support for the union and and that the union could play no role representing any group of workers um, at that in the bargaining unit, uh, short of being able to represent a full majority of them. Um, and that the the um, the uh, ability to um, keep a, you, the union entirely out of the workplace, unless and until a, a full majority has been demonstrated, has been uh, the um, the has has opened the door to all of the you know or, or has has been the, the the wiggle room or that's not the right word really but the space that employers have taken advantage of to engage in all sorts of um, you know union avoidance uh, behaviors is the nice way of putting it right to, to, <laughs> to discourage that majority from ever taking shape. Um, until then, a, comp a, a union like the UFCW, which has organized Walmart workers for decades, can make no inroads anywhere in any particular store in any corner of the company because yeah. of the, the majoritarian principle, which was enshrined in the board process. Uh, unions before that, um, without any kind of defined legal process for securing recognition, in, in many ways, were in a much less tenable situation, right? Um, but were able, if they could, to organize a group of workers, fight it out at the workplace, and even if that was just one division as part of a big auto plant, get the company to agree to negotiate over terms of their uh, their work. There was nothing prohibiting that from happening. There's nothing that prohibits it from happening now, but the way that the certification process that the board put into place has defined so much of labor relations over the last um, you know, 70 years has made it much more difficult. Yeah, I think um, what you were saying about minority unionism uh, speaks to sort of an increasing kind of legal abstraction of the union itself as an organization versus the actual political aims of the union and some of these broader working class interests that unions once represented. Um, now it's actually about what does the union signify as a body of people, right? Um, and on that note, could you elaborate a little bit about what you discuss in the article um, on the distinction between formal unions and these new sorts of workers' organizations, such as worker centers um, and other broad-based advocacy groups and even, you know, campaigns that are attached to unions but not yeah. formally part of the union and, and their role in the broader labor movement. And I guess my underlying question with that is, what is the end game here, right? Um, you know, if the point is to advocate for workers' interests more broadly, does that say something about the... Um, relevance of the union structure itself to today's workplace struggles. Uh, well, so I think the, I think about this question, I guess, maybe in terms of um, both uh, ends and means, um, and maybe I'm try to organize my thoughts a little bit on those ways. Talk first about means. I think the reason that we've seen over the last couple of decades the increase in uh, non-traditional worker organizations, worker centers, the, the uh, things of that kind, I think has been because it has become so difficult to form unions in this country, right? Um, that the question is, all right, we may not be able to successfully build and form a union in this workplace amongst this group of workers right now, but how can we go ahead and act like a union anyway? And a lot can be won by acting like a union without even formally having won one. I, I've been involved in organizing campaigns which have gone on for long periods of time as a 
unrecognized unions, kind of effectively union organizing committees, which have been able to win indirectly at the workplace um, concrete material gains um, from employers. The worker center model, right, without going through the formally enshrined collective bargaining process that the union allows, is able to um, bring workers together at a workplace or often spread across many different workplaces in, in the case of many worker centers, which are also in that case responding to the, the difficulties of dispersed bargaining units and things like that, and to um, bring workers together and see what they can win, right, by organizing. So I think one thing that is significant about what we see happening now in fast food and Walmart and, and its corollaries and other kinds of uh, organizing projects that do not take on at least immediately the form of the union is a um, forward thinking and, and hopeful response to the extraordinary legal and political impediments standing in the way of workers forming unions in this day and age and figuring out if we can't, if we can't win a union, how can, we, how can we fight like one and see what we win that way? On terms of the ends, um, I think there's a real question about, in this particular case of the, the workers that I write about in, in, the, in fast food and in and Walmart and other service sector places, uh, and I think it's a question about worker center models more broadly about whether short of winning those, securing those formal collective bargaining rights, which allow workers to negotiate directly with employers over a set of terms of their work, whether those kinds of non-traditional organizing strategies will be able to shape uh, the terms of work in those particular industries in the way that, say, you know, the UAW did in in the auto industry or the steel workers did in the steel industry for decades, right? The the wage floor, even in non-union auto parts plants or non-union steel mills, were set by those union contracts um, and now, that's not true anymore about those very industries, right? The weakness of the UAW. The UAW is no longer the standard bearer and if, you know, w- wages are moving downward rather than upward because of the preponderance of non-union manufacturing in that industry. So I, th- I, I, I suspect that um, though the um, our Walmart and Fast Food Forward have not explicitly said they – aspire to not only win the kind of material gains of a wage rates and this and that, but actually to function as a collective bargaining agent on behalf of those workers and form and to uh, as a formal union. That is, and I would argue, should be the intention of these organizing projects. It's hard for me to um, see how, short of that, the kind of paradigm shift that the industrial unions were able to make in those core sectors of the American economy in the 30s, 40s, and 50s would be possible short of short of unionizing. And I would say, you know, from a, from a more uh, crude perspective, you know, uh, as I mentioned in the article, you know, the, 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 the unions that are funding our Walmart, U, U, the UFCW and SCIU in the case of Fast Food Forward, are depend kind of existentially um, on figuring out how to organize new workers into dues, you know, as dues paying members of um, private, you know, private sector unions going forward. And so I can't imagine that they would spend the money that they're spending and the res- devote the resources without some intention of um, that being a way of, of building u- union growth in, in two overwhelmingly non-union sectors of the economy. Right. And, and I mean, to be fair, they, they, there are probably good strategic reasons for them not to push that line too hard because, you know, at this point, it, it is still a developing movement. And uh, yeah, so I guess. Um, and, but, the, and I would just cut you off say for the very majoritarian, li- the limiting factors of the majoritarian framework that we were talking about before, they, they don't represent a majority. Yeah. Right. And they and um, would should they call an election now, undoubtedly lose. Yeah. Um, and so I think that is right to say that what we are doing is teaching a bunch of people how to stand up for themselves, how to fight for what's right, bringing a case to the public about the deplorable pay and other kinds of conditions of this kind of work, and and putting putting a bunch of workers through experiences of taking risks and standing up and fighting for themselves, which pays huge dividends going forward. Yeah. Well, and it's also interesting that even just the difference between the two campaigns, right, that 
our Walmart very specifically says we are not trying to unionize these workers. And they have a legal disclaimer on every email that they send out that says we are not trying to organize these workers into the union. Whereas the fast food movement specifically says $15 an hour in a union. Right. They are, right. they are right. saying that's they want right. a union. Yep. They're not saying how and when and which union that's going to be. And I, I found it sort of interesting that the one unionized fast food establishment that we've seen come out of this was actually, I believe, with Unite Here, not with SEIU. Is that right? I, I'm, uh... That was one of the ones in D.C. Yeah, okay. it was at the Smithsonian Museum. Right. Uh-huh. Oh, right. Yes, I saw that story. That's right. That is, I think that is Unite Here. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what I wanted to switch was, of course, you brought up the point, and we've talked about several times already, that the idea of strikes being a way to threaten production, um, and you bring up the different actions that have taken up place up and down the supply chain, specifically Walmart supply chain. Do you think the one-day strike has a different meaning at different points along the supply chain, or would these strikes still need to hold out longer in order to really have an effect? Uh, you know, the latter, I think. Um, I'm sure Walmart senior executives panic a good deal more when there's a one-day strike at a uh, distribution center facility or in the, you know, along the the kind of trucking and lines and in the ports. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I do think that 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 represents a different kind of choke point in the yeah. supply chain than the end point of the of the retail outlet. But we're also talking about a um, extraordinarily sophisticated, truly global um, supply and logistics chain and shutting it down at one point for a day will not be sufficient to imp- impact the, the movement of goods that Walmart does day in, day out at a scale unlike any other corporation in the history of the world, right? Let's be frank. Yeah. Um, and and so I, while I do think it's hard to imagine um, bringing that corporation to the bargaining table in any way, shape, or form without some truly um, – integrated corporation-wide organizing of different kinds of workers, um, distribution workers, probably, you know, production workers, most of whom are in China and, and then, and then the retail staff. Um, I think it would, and it would have to happen over a a much longer duration. Mm -hmm. Certainly that's also the the way the industry is structured now, right? It has these contingencies built into it to both limit liability as well as, um, you know, uh, build in these sort of um, um, fallbacks in in case there is a choke point. So, I mean, to even think, talk about choke points is maybe a bit moot in terms of just the way. I I mean, there are are still definitely choke points. I I have this wonderful interview with a port truck driver from Savannah that um, the piece is in somewhat limbo right now, but... um, it will be out at some point. And he's like, you know, three days, if we had a nationwide movement, three days, every Walmart in the country would be empty mm-hmm. if the port truckers all went on strike. Mm-hmm. It's true. Right. I mean, the, the just-in-time delivery system upon which they depend, right, which keeps their, uh, you know, stocks as kind of um, thinly stocked uh, as possible. Um, right. Uh, is, is a point of vulnerability. I think what it would actually mean to shut down enough, enough trucking lines um, over the course of three days to make that possible. I think that would, would take be, a lot that, of work. That is, that is the, the big bottom. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, it's a surprisingly small number of ports uh-huh. through which a lot of this stuff goes. Yep. And That's so, I mean, there, there are still mm-hmm. very strategically important choke points, like the one you talk about with... Um, was it the UAW in the piece where you talk about them uh, finding the choke point and holding on for dear life? Right. They're different now. Yes. But they absolutely. still exist. Yes. Right, right. And I think the cross-sector issue, I think, is also key, too. As you were saying, you know, that this movement will really pick up steam if and when they figure out ways to organize across the supply chain. And, and I guess I was wondering if you're watching any of the Black Friday actions in which you actually saw some of the poor truckers uh, doing coordinated actions mm-hmm. with um, – with the actual Walmart uh, employees and, and some of the related logistics workers, um, yeah. you know, do you think that might be important of, of a future, you know, organizing tactic that may become more elaborate and widespread? I would hope so. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think everything that is um, happening now at all points of the supply chain 
is great. Um, and wasn't happening 10, 15, 20 years ago in the same kind of way. There's a group of, like I say, kind of individual workers who are going through um, the kinds of ex experiences which are emboldening and empowering and make greater risks and more militant, um, longer-term, large-scale actions possible on the other side. There is the, in moments like this, the beginning of a map of a kind of like, uh, I think you said cross-sectoral, or uh, was the phrase you were using, or a kind of integrated organizing model that that you know, mimics the way capital moves, right? Labor thinking about how to organize itself in a way that is appropriate for the way capital moves at this day and age. Mm. Um, all that's encouraging. It would have to happen, you know, it is not that it, it is not to take away anything to say also that it is not happening enough with enough workers in enough places now to uh, cha change anything, right? To, 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 to win a union, to just probably to secure... Um, you know, meaningful wage reform in, in the industry. Um, but I think we're beginning to see the contours of something which, uh, it, if, and, if and when it does develop and deepen, could be a different kind of model than what we've seen thus far in, in organizing these kinds of um, corporations and, and these, these types of very difficult to organize industries. Mm, yeah, and I think it's also relevant to this discussion when we discuss the, uh, the barriers to cross-sectoral and supply chain organizing that um, we also note, you know, the, the significance of uh, free trade policies and all this and restrictions on the movement of labor across, uh, you know, uh, national boundaries compared to the very rather fluid movement of global capital um, and, and how those two processes are kind of deliberately misaligned in a way that maximizes corporate power. And I was wondering if you, if you had maybe thought about that in your analysis a little bit about the future of the labor movement in a globalized world. Um, we saw at last year's Walmart shareholders conference workers from the U.S. Uh, amassing in solidarity with workers in Bangladesh. And, um, you know, uh, we, we also need to recognize that the supply chain starts really, you know, in, in the factories that actually churn out some of these products yeah. that are Walmart branded. And I, I was just wondering, you know, it's, it seems so daunting, you know, to even conceptualize it. But do you, do you foresee this perhaps moving in that direction? And, and perhaps it's the only direction it could possibly move in if it is to succeed. Yeah. Uh, the idea of a truly sort of global union formation or at least some kind of labor movement that looks at all of these different points simultaneously yep. and tries to balance these interests between global north and south uh, in yep. a way that maybe, frankly, many U.S. workers may not be thinking about right now. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, 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 it's, a, it's a, a big challenge, and I also think it's a challenge that the um, most forward-thinking and progressive unions in this day, uh, kind of organizing unions in this day and age are um uh absolutely trying to figure out i mean i you know i i i'm an organizer with the unite here local in new haven and uh am very far away from the international affairs department of our union but it coordinates and we have and the union has been very successful at organizing you know uh hyatt uh has been one of the main employers that in the uh, uh hospitality industry that that Unite here organizes that, and Hyatt is a truly global uh, brand, right? With with as many global brands, it's kind of major growth markets in places like um, India right now, and um, figured out how to coordinate um, a an organizing campaign which wins bargaining rights in different hotels across what is a what is a global company at this moment in time. And I think not only does that build you know alliances which are you know run a thwart to what you were saying before about uh, um, the, you know, the kind of misalignment between an unbounded capital and nationally, and, you know, the kind of national boundaries on the movement of people, and but also is able to uh, or organize more effectively, I think, against global companies like Hyatt or like Walmart um, uh, or other kinds than simply organizing any one particular national context. Definitely. So switching sort of gears from, from international production um, to workers who, whose production is not that kind of production at all, when I tweeted this week that we'd be discussing your article on One Day Strikes, 
one of my Twitter followers, um, Julie Popper, who is with 1199 Northwest with SEIU, um, which hospital workers, she pointed out that, you know, hospital workers will go out on a one day strike um, and the hospital will then turn around and lock them out for several days, usually because they have to hire replacements. There have been one day strikes in a lot of places in different sectors. Um, Can you talk about some of that problem, how in different places the one-day strike has meant different things, and specifically it's often allowed bosses to sort of plan ahead. Uh-huh. I think, you know, what I would say about that is that I think it is true that one-day strikes have been effective in certain um, contexts. Right. I don't know the hospital um, sector well enough to speak with anything like um, the intelligence and experience that um, you were saying the organizer who you were in touch with from out west has. But one place where it has been effective has been at, hotel, at uh, hospitals, universities, um, places which are dependent on public money in a different kind of way than yeah. private, uh, fully private industry and are also more protective of their public brand and reputation than McDonald's or even Walmart is, right? Um, and so the publicity of a group of nurses or a group of university custodians shutting down or simply even if not shutting down, right, because replacement workers are brought in in time or, or right. whatever, um, the operations of a hospital university begs embarrassing questions for the boards of trustees, which make the business decisions at places like that. Um, and I would say what we have seen, the, the simply the, the kind of news and media coverage um, right. in, in places much more towards the mainstream than, than belabored, um, right. would suggest that like the one-day strike is an effective way of winning public sympathy for uh, a group of um, exploited workers, absolutely. And in some contexts, employers are vulnerable enough to that kind of public scrutiny that it can affect the changes that um, that the workers are after. Um, but as I imagine the experiences that, uh, again, the organizer you were talking about in, 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 in out west was saying, it's a, it's a gamble to a certain extent because, you know, the board of trustees might reckon that the pro- you know, kind of restructuring process that they're trying to put through or the short staffing of the nurses saves them more money than the, you know, public embarrassment costs them for a day. Um, and and uh, if, in that, if that's the case, then as an action, there are clear limitations on, on what the one-day strike can accomplish. As we wrap up, I, I was just wondering if you might be able to talk about your own personal experiences as an organizer in um, another uh, sector, which yeah. we're not used to hearing a lot as, uh, about a lot as a bastion of union activism, uh, which is higher education. And I was wondering if you know, your piece, um, to what extent was your piece informed by some of the insights you've gained um, as someone who has been doing labor organizing in a yeah. non-union context? Yeah, I mean, I'm an organizer of a graduate student union at Yale University, and I have been for uh, most of the last four years. Um, I, I've uh, written about the labor movement a lot. I'm, uh, for, you know, studying for a PhD in American labor history, I think. Uh, so I've thought a lot about worker organizing and uh, the kinds of uh, challenges and opportunities for it throughout American history. Um, I think it took me becoming an organizer and doing the work to realize how extraordinarily terrifying it is for any group of workers, um, the most um, structurally vulnerable, the the, uh, uh, the, the the working poor, the undocumented, racial minorities, and the not-so-vulnerable, like fairly middle-class graduate students at a, a university like Yale, how extraordinarily terrifying it is to do anything like stand up to the boss in any context, whether the boss is uh, your shift manager at Walmart or you know your administ- the administrative faculty in your graduate program um, or the you know provost of the university. And... I've never seen anything in my organizing get people through that fear um, short of the work of standing up for themselves in in one context or another. Um, That no sophisticated analysis of the structural factors causing their uh, exploitation, no 
amount of sheer desperation um, is enough to, in many cases, to overcome the, the, the fear that of the risks that are entailed with standing up for oneself and standing up in the face of a, a formalized authority at the workplace. And each time that happens, in the case of the organizing campaign that I've been a, a leader in for this period of time, it makes the union that we are building, right, which is to what I was saying before, is, is not a union yet, but acts like a union in many ways, stronger and more capable and, and convinces more people that the next, the next greater, larger action is possible. And that is a, a lesson, I guess, about where solidarity, uh, to use a hackneyed expression, comes from. Um, and uh, a lesson that I think anybody who has spent any amount of time organizing workers into a union uh, or trying to knows to be uh, true to the core of their being. Um, the lessons that the fast food workers and Walmart workers are learning about themselves and their coworkers right now is the most important thing that they can learn if they want to build a union. Mm-hmm. Right. Is there, is there a place where we can find out more about the organizing you're doing at Yale online? Uh, we have, there's a, yep, there's a website, uh, GSO, the Graduate Employees and Student Organization, is the um, uh, union organizing committee that I'm a part of. We're an affiliate of um, Unite Here, which represents um, clerical and technical workers on uh, Yale's campus and also custodial and maintenance workers. So we have a website, gso.org, and we are, um, hopefully we'll be following our colleagues at NYU in the news shortly um, in securing union representation here also in the way that, that they that they just have. So, Well, congratulations, uh, if that's not too re- premature, and good luck in any case. Big right, knock on you. wood. Big knock on, well, we're sitting at a Formica table here, so I'm not going <laughs> to knock on it. Wood. I'm not going to knock on it because I don't want to jinx you. Okay. Well, thank you, though. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Max Fraser. Once again, you can find his article at the Descent Magazine website, where we will put links to other fun things we discussed in this conversation. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. ARG. Um, and so my growl-worthy pick for today was Peter Dreyer, um, historian uh, and an author who wrote a piece revisiting the war on poverty. And I know that it's been making the news rounds and uh, people have been holding up the uh, war on poverty that LBJ led um, and its anniversary as sort of a, um, a benchmark to see where we are today in fighting against poverty. Needless to say, we're pretty damn far behind. Uh, but I did think it was interesting because, well, you know, some on the left have sort of taken a critical eye on the war on poverty, and of course, conservatives regularly lambast it as a lost cause. Um, Peter Dreyer, in writing in uh, the Huffington Post, he actually has a pretty um, interesting sort of historical um, uh, elucidation of the war on poverty and how far it's come. Uh, up until this point, and he sort of goes from uh, basically the waning days of the Kennedy administration all the way up to Occupy Wall Street, and I thought it was an interesting historical perspective. Um, He makes some interesting points, which is to say that even though the war on poverty initiatives um, were, you know, liberal, centrist, um, often not always tackling the structural causes of poverty head on. Uh, it was they were definitely inspired by Michael Harrington's sort of premonitions about um, an increasingly polarized America and some of his concerns about what would happen in a world in which um, uh, structural uh, issues such as you know chronic mass unemployment were allowed to sort of take hold and continue to uh, rend a lot of our communities apart. And um, he noted pretty elaborately how the original ethos behind the war on poverty ended up drifting away due to a lack of funding, a lack of political will, and of course the creeping neoliberalism that really crested during the Reagan administration that sort of uh, saw the war on poverty as sort of a lost, um, you know, a war we had lost essentially. All that to say that um, it's worth noting that the last significant drop in poverty was when it was essentially... um, you know, cut in half um, within years of the rollout of the war on poverty. And today we have um, poverty has basically remained at a steady rate. Um, And, you know, 
many times higher than that in European. You know, it's worth revisiting on this anniversary and also worth thinking about in terms of where we are in our national willpower to tackle a problem like poverty. We're in worse political circumstances and worse economic circumstances than we were during the early 60s, but we are also um, facing a political and economic climate in which more people who once previously thought of themselves as middle class now feel that they have more in common with working class people and the poor. And in many cases, their material circumstances, uh, that, that, is, that is definitely true in terms of where they are in their proximity to the poverty level. So uh, worth checking out. We'll have a link to that on our website. So this week, the piece that really made me go arg was Mia Tokamitsu at Jacobin, um, a piece titled In the Name of Love, which is about the common, these days, admonition for people to do what you love in terms of, of course, work. Go find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life is this oft-quoted aphorism from I forget who it's attributed to because, well, it's probably... It's been falsely attributed to many people. Right, exactly. And so... What this actually does to us, though, is make us essentially, as we've talked about many times here, work very, very hard for very little reward. Um, And the idea that the reward for our work should be emotional rather than financial is deeply damaging. Um, This piece hits me right where I live. I am a journalist. I am supposed to be someone who is working because of the love of it. Um, My job is notably not one of the most lucrative out there. Um, And sometimes I hate it. And it's very hard to say that because I feel like I'm being ungrateful that I should talk about how I love my job. And yeah, I think that's sort of damaging. Um, She uses as an example Steve Jobs' exhortations to make work a labor of love and how that actually erases all the work of those who do the decidedly unglamorous work of making the products that Steve Jobs came up with. Steve Jobs and his engineers and designers who are also erased from the entire process. Um, Do what you love presumes that work is the highest good, that it's its own reward, and that those of us who do not love what we do deserve what we get. And of course it's highly individualized, precluding any idea of solidarity. One of the interesting things I saw about that, I thought about that piece was that uh, she actually notes um, that there's almost sort of a quasi-religious element to it. And I thought that was really interesting in light of um, our interview with Liza Featherstone Mm -hmm. and what she was saying about the Walmart workers and the corporate culture that they instill in people and kind of this prosperity gospel sort of evangelical idea of, of a culture of doing things that are great for the company. And I just thought it was really interesting because I think that if we look around at our workplace cultures, many of us, whether we're working um, service jobs or whether we're working in the uh, so-called professions, right, or the intellectual jobs, um, we'll, we'll often find that that is supposed to, in many ways, compensate for the material benefits of ac- the actual work. So yeah. worth thinking about. Yep. So, of course, we'll put a link to that at the Descent website. Thank you, as always, for listening to us. We will be back next week with more thrilling, exciting, and often depressing news from the world of labor. And you can always tweet at us at the hashtag belabored. And you can also uh, find all of our archives on the Descent Magazine website. Special thanks to Natasha Lewis for engineering this episode. Bye. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twenty five, hell no, we can't go.